Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, our focus will be verses 14 to 21, the prayer and praise of the Apostle Paul. But I want to read beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places." according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations which uh, for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the Lord's day. It's a great uh, privilege to gather in the house of God, to come to you on your day with the people of God. And we pray tonight that you would be glorified in this glad hour. We pray that you would bless us as we consider Holy Scripture, as we see the prayer of the Apostle Paul, the praise that the church gives to you, and that, Father, you would edify and strengthen each one of us. As well, we pray for the forgiveness of all of our sin and those things that uh, darken our understanding. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us and lead us into all truth, that you would build up this church, that you would continue to strengthen each of the, the brethren here. Bless Pastor Mike as he continues to labor in the word and in doctrine. And may this church be a function, a, a faithful beachhead in this community to shine forth the gospel of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this is a high calling for each of us to shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation and to hold forth your word of truth. And certainly there is great need in our day as we see uh, a situation where men call good evil and evil good. There's so much confusion, so much rebellion, so much chaos, and so much of a disregard for your law. 
May your gospel be proclaimed, and may you indeed make more worshipers through sovereign grace. Those who formerly blasphemed, may they come to the churches of Christ to praise, to glorify, and to honor Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as I said, our focus will be verses 14 to 21. There's a lot of material there. The Apostle Paul writes in a very dense matters, uh, manner, so hopefully we'll get through this tonight. But basically, we have the prayer of the Apostle Paul in verses 14 to 19, and then the praise given to our glorious God in verses 20 to 21. Now, in terms of structure, if you look at verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then in verse 14, it says, For this reason. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most commentators agree that there's a digression or a digression from verses 2 to 13. So the Apostle Paul is going to end this particular section, chapters 1 and 2, with praise or prayer to God and then praise to God. But he wants to underscore, he wants to highlight his place in the stewardship of the mystery of the gospel. What's the mystery? Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's what he's uh, spent his time on in chapter 2. It actually goes all the way back to chapter 1, where he prays for them, and specifically in verse 19, that they may know the power of God. And that power of God is displayed first in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, which closes out chapter 1. That power of God is revealed in the salvation of individual sinners, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And then that power of God is displayed in the solidarity of Jew and Gentile, one new man under Christ in verses 11 to 22. So then on the heels of that, for this reason, I pray. For this reason, I praise. We'll see that specifically in verse 14, but the digression simply indicates his imprisonment, and then the mystery and his stewardship in verses 2 to 7, and then the mystery and God's eternal purpose in verses 8 to 13. So that's the structure. So when we get to chapter 3, verse 14, and we ask the question, what is the occasion of his prayers? We're looking now at the prayer of the apostle in verses 14 to 19. What is the occasion? So verse 14 says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most, or rather some commentators, would take it with reference to verse 13. And I certainly think it functions in a, in a manner consistent with that. So notice in verse 13, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for uh, your glory. That leads him naturally into his prayers on their behalf. But in the larger context, it probably connects back to chapter 2. The same reason he specifies in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, the solidarity of Jew and Gentile, one new man under Christ, the reality that God in his graciousness has saved sinners and brought them to himself. So he is praying because of that. And then notice, he doesn't ever say in the section that he is praying. He says that he bows his knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator says, Paul does not use a verb of praying, but instead uses the posture for praying as a metonymy for the action itself. The posture of kneeling communicated humble submission and worship. Now, the Bible records people standing in prayer. The Bible records people sitting in prayer. The Bible also records people kneeling in prayer. There is no one way only that you can 
pray to God. But in this particular instance, Paul takes to his knees to pray on behalf of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see the audience to whom he prays. So he says in verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. It's not speaking of God in creational terms. Remember at the Areopagus or in Mars Hill, the Apostle Paul recognizes that we are the offspring of God. There is a sense wherein God is a universal father in terms of creation, but he's not a universal father in terms of redemption. The Apostle Paul is speaking specifically of the living and true God. He comes through the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he bends his knees on behalf of the family of God, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And again, solidarity is the emphasis in this section. There is a brand of theology that separates the people of God. There's a brand of theology that says right now God is really dealing with the Gentiles. But at the end of this age, the Gentiles are going to be raptured away, and then God is going to redirect his energies to the Jews. Well, Ephesians 2 makes that extremely unlikely because we see that he takes the two men and makes one new man in Christ Jesus. The whole emphasis in Ephesians 2 and 3 is on solidarity, corporate solidarity. Jews and Gentiles are together in their worship of the true and living God. And so he bows his knee to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ to pray for the family of God. And then the specific content of his prayer is revealed in three petitions. He prays for three things in this brief section. First, he prays a petition for strength, verses 16 to 17a. You'll notice the word that that begins verse 16. That's a petition. You'll notice the second petition is a petition for knowledge. That's in the middle of verse 17. That, you being rooted and grounded in love. And then the third petition is for uh, fullness. And you see that in the middle of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So those three that's indicate the specific petitions of the apostles prayer. He wants them to be strong. He wants them to be knowledgeable and he wants them to be filled with all the fullness of God. So let's unpack this in first, in the first place with reference to the petition for strength. So in 16 to 17 a, he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the source of this blessing is the limitless power of God Almighty. And he sets it forth this way, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Up to this point in the epistle, he has mentioned the riches of God's grace in chapter 1 and verse 7. He's mentioned God's grace or the exceeding riches of God's grace in chapter 2 and verse 7. He's mentioned the exceeding greatness of God's glory in chapter 1, verse 18. The specific emphasis here is very clear. There is no lack in God. When the apostle comes to the Father through the Son in the Spirit, he does not doubt that God is able to make good on this particular request. And verse 20 seals the deal. Verse 20, he says, now to him it is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. In other words, brethren, as we come to this particular passage, if you want to know what the agenda tonight is, I want you to go home and pray. 
Maybe not tonight. I mean, that would be good, but you need to be praying the way that Paul prays. It's good to pray for physical maladies. It's good to pray for the brother that broke his arm. It's good to pray for the brother that lost his job. It's good to pray for the brother whose aunt, you know, Mabel has a, a broken toe and she's in the hospital. But we need to remember the spiritual petitions offered up by the apostle. He wants them to be strong. He wants to be, them to be strengthened with might in the inner man by the spirit so that Christ may dwell richly in their hearts through faith. He wants them to be knowledgeable and he wants them to be filled with all the fullness of God. Do our prayer meetings imitate or look like what the apostle prays for in this specific set, uh, section? So the emphasis here is that he has infinite resources with which to bless his people. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. It's always good to be reminded of that when we go to God in prayer. But then notice the description of this blessing, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Again, it's not wrong to pray for the outer man. Jesus tells us in the Lord's prayer to pray for our daily bread. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong to pray for good health. Nothing wrong to pray for God's provision. Nothing wrong to pray for those things that affect the external man. But let, brethren, let's not do it to the neglect of the inner man. Let's not do it to the neglect of the spirit. Let's not do it to the neglect of those things which ultimately matter uh, in, a, in a very most, uh, uh, most excellent way. And then notice the result of this blessing. It's beautiful. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his grace, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now notice that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, the strength that comes from the Father through the Spirit results in more presence of the Son in your life. In other words, Paul doesn't just sort of dabble in the doctrine of the Trinity in a few places in the New Testament. His theology is thoroughly Trinitarian. We see it in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He praises the Father for election and predestination. He praises the Father for the work of the Son in redemption through His blood. He praises the Father for the work of the Spirit in giving us, or giving us the Spirit as the seal and guarantee of our final inheritance. The Apostle is thoroughly Trinitarian. In fact, look back in chapter 2 at verse 18. For through Him, Jesus Jesus Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one Spirit to the Father. And then look at verse 22 in chapter 2, in whom, Jesus Christ, you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So it shouldn't cause us to marvel when he's praying Trinitarian, uh, Trinitarian theology in verses 16 and 17. So the power that comes from God through the Spirit results in Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Now, just as the humanity of our Lord Jesus is not coextensive with the divinity, the divinity is not tied down to where the humanity is locally present at the right hand of the Father. Christ dwells in the hearts of his people by the Spirit. Christ is everywhere present with his people. It's a most blessed and a most wonderful truth. And notice how this is appropriated. It's through faith that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We looked at that a little bit this morning. Jesus chided Peter for being of little faith. We need faith, an increase of faith for the presence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. So Paul prays that the people of God be strengthened. 
Why would we need to be strengthened? Well, again, verse 13, there is a close connection. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. There are tribulations, there are troubles, there are afflictions, there are trials and hardships in this present evil age. What is it that the Christian church needs? We need strength. We need strength to persevere. We need uh, strength to be faithful. We need strength to not close our churches down. We need strength to hold fast. We need strength to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. We need strength. Remember when General Joshua was being dispatched into the promised land, what does God say? Just go in there and be winsome. Just go in there and be, you know, be just kind of prance around. Be strong and of good courage. You're going in to kill people and break things. You can't do that as a nice guy, Joshua. You need strength. You need courage. You need the wherewithal to stand fast and to hold the line for God most high. Do you think the church is wanting in this area? If so, then pray for her. Again, pray for the broken arms. Pray for the lost jobs. Pray for those particular needs that affect the outer man. But pray that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century— that is in a society of absolute debauchery and wretchedness will be strong, will be strengthened with might in the inner man by the spirit so that Christ may dwell richly in our hearts through faith. But then notice he goes on to pray for knowledge and increase in knowledge. And we see that first in terms of the foundation of the blessing. Look at verse 17. He says in the middle that you being rooted and grounded in love. He's not commanding them to be grounded and rooted in love. He is assuming that they are in love. They've been rooted. They've been grounded. Go back to Ephesians 1 at verse 17. Ephesians 1, verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, the verse, next verse, we could translate this way. The eyes of your understanding having been enlightened. In other words, they were not dead in their trespasses and sins. They had been made alive because they had been made alive. He wants them now to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we go back to chapter three, specifically in the middle of verse 17, his petition for knowledge. He assumes they're born again. He assumes that they're regenerate. He assumes they've tasted already something of the love of God, but he wants them to increase in that. He wants them to understand it. He wants them to be more solid in it. You know, when you're first committed, Uh, converted, you know something of God's love for you, but you don't stay there. You learn, you grow, you mature, you get more faithful in terms of your appropriation of those blessings that God has granted. So again, it's not a command, a goal, or a petition, but rather it is a statement of fact, and it's because you've been rooted and grounded in love that the next part follows. Notice what he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So he wants you to grow in your understanding, not of your love for Christ, but of Christ's love for you. He wants you to be a scholar in Christ's school of love. And notice this isn't confined to the pastor's. It isn't confined to the seminary students. 
It's not just confined to the handful of guys that really like theology. No, look at what he says, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. I think we have bought the lie that theology is only for the pastors, that it's only for the doctors in the church. It's only for the seminarians. Theology is for everybody, and theology is necessary to stabilize the people of God. If you're not growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, what does Paul say will happen to you in Ephesians chapter 4? You will be tossed to and fro. You'll be battered around by every wind of doctrine. You'll have no tether. You'll have no strength. You'll have no stability. Why does Peter end his uh, second epistle on that high note? But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those who say, well, you know, that's for Pastor Mike, or that's for Pastor Butler, or that's for whoever, you need to repent, and you need to take to the scriptures and, and good theology and grow in your understanding of God's love. So he wants them to have a further knowledge of something they already know. And look at the way he describes this, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. A lot of strange or fanciful interpretations of that sort of fourfold expression. I think Stephen Baugh is right, though. He says a significant number of interpreters are right to see the reference in verse 18b as a reference to the boundless, inscrutable character of Christ's love. This is what he wants you to grow in your, in your knowledge of. Again, brethren, I'm all for studying all kinds of stuff in Holy Scripture, but that which stabilizes the soul is a recognition of Christ's love for us. When you are down in the doldrums, when you are depressed or melancholic, is it your love for Christ that lifts you up? Probably not. Is it Christ's love for you that is most calculated to lift you up? Absolutely, positively so. He wants you to grow in your understanding of Jesus' love for you. And that love, look at the, the, the irony of his statement, that you may be able to comprehend what is incomprehensible, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. It's not like you're going to exhaust this resource. You're not going to get to the point where you say, oh, now I get it. I, I finally figured it out. I, I know every contour. I know every jot and tittle. I know every bit of the reality of Christ's love for me. No, it passes knowledge. This is a lifelong pursuit. This is into eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, right, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Why is that? Because the infinite God of heaven and earth has set his love upon wretches, upon finite beings, upon sinful rebels. And when we contemplate this now, here and now, it is absolutely mind-blowing. We will never wrap our finite minds around the infinite love of God. And that love begins from or, or is, is sourced back to prior to creation. Paul in Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then it says, in love, having predestined us unto adoption as sons. So even before the world was, God loved us? Yeah. But that love shows demonstration in history. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved his disciples, according to John 13, to the end. 
The blessed love of Christ is most excellent and most worthy of a pursuit by the people of God to know it. So Paul wants us to be strong. Paul wants us to be knowledge. And then thirdly, knowledgeable. And then thirdly, he wants us to be full. He wants us to be full. If you look at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a tough section of scripture. How do you, how do you preach that? What does that mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? You've just reminded us that God is infinite and we're finite. So how in the world can we be filled with all the fullness of God? Is Paul praying something that is unattainable? Is Paul praying something that that we just can't achieve? It's kind of like saying, let's go down to the Pacific and let's try to put that into a glass. Let's try to concentrate the Pacific Ocean into a glass. We could do that before we could put the infinite God, uh, all, the, all that is about the infinite God into a finite manner, understanding of the finite man. So what does he mean, be filled with all the fullness of God? Well, commentators go one of two ways, and I'll take the second way, but I'll tell you what the first way is. First, the fullness of benefit. The fullness of benefit, Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So the idea is, is that Paul wants us to be filled with all the fullness of God in terms of benefit. There's other scriptures that shine light upon this interpretation. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 30 and 31, but of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So all the fullness of God's benefit, I want you to know, I want you to appropriate, I want you to receive by faith. And then in uh, Colossians 1.19, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Not Colossians 2.9, where it pleased the uh, Father that all, that, that, that all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. In uh, and, and Colossians 1.19, it's, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. I think Edie's right. All fullness of grace or saving blessings dwells in Christ. Whatever is needed to save a fallen world and restore harmony to the universe is treasured up in him is in him. So I don't think there's anything wrong with the interpretation of verse 19, uh, verse 19, that being filled with all the fullness of God means the fullness of benefit. But I think the context indicates something else. He wants us to be filled with all the fullness, get this, of God's presence, God's presence. Why would I say that? Well, the Old Testament helps me to say that. In the tabernacle that's constructed, according to Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's the fullness of God, the Shekinah glory. They finished the construction of the tabernacle. So what does God do? He shows and represents and symbolizes his presence by that cloud. The dedication of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. It came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? I think this is where Paul is going. In the visionary temple, in Ezekiel 43, verse 5, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the outer court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. If you have paid attention at all, and I know it's getting late, and I know it's the end of the Lord's day, but I've already tipped my hand. 
the filling of God, the fullness of God, comes upon the New Testament temple of God, which is the people of God. So look at 2.18 again with me. For through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Verse 22, in whom, Jesus, you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So for the apostle Paul, when he comes to pray for the Ephesian church, he wants them to be strengthened with might in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. He wants them to know that love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. And he wants it to be the case that when they gather for corporate worship, the fullness of God would come down. They would know his presence. They would know his nearness. They would know communion with the living and true God. Brethren, as I've tried to tell my church or our church, I don't like saying my church, it's not my church, it's Christ's church. I mean the church in Chilliwack. I've tried to tell them that the New Testament envisages something more glorious in terms of corporate worship than most Christians recognize. Revelation 1.13, Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. Doesn't that make you happy? Christ right now is in the midst of his faithful churches. He's communing with us. He's blessing us. Not perfectly, not what it's going to be when we enter into the new Jerusalem. We're still tired. We're still drowsy. We still wonder if this guy could just be a little quieter. I, I really try, brethren, but I get a little fired up. When, when I remember years ago when we had a lady in our church, she brought her grandson. The moment I started preaching, he blocked up his ears and he says, does, does he have a volume switch? It's just one of those things. But, but the bottom line is it's imperfect, but it's nevertheless real. Christ is in the midst of the lampstands. The Paul that wants you to be strong, the Paul that wants you to know the love of Christ is the Paul that wants you to be filled with all the fullness of God most high. And consider what this does with corporate worship. Has anybody ever asked you, why do you go to church? What's your response? Is your response, well, you know, the Bible tells me to. That's a legitimate response. The Bible affords a particular day on which we worship God. That's a legitimate response. But is it ever the case where you respond because we get to meet with our God? We get to meet in a special way. Not that I don't meet him in my closet. Not that I don't meet him at the prayer, uh, the family altar. But we meet the Lord God most high in, this, in a special way. Ephesians and Colossians are very, well, Ephesians more so, is a very churchly epistle. In other words, there is a high church emphasis. I don't mean high church with robes and vestments and all, all that sort of garbage. I'm talking about the doctrine of the church that is held in disregard by so many Christians today is not the Christianity of the New Testament. The New Testament sees a robust commitment on the part of God's people to the church because it's there where the church is filled with all the fullness of God. This is a most glorious passage, and it moves us from the realm of the ordinary to the extraordinary. As a pastor, one of the things that I've had to do, and I'm sure Pastor Mike will, if you know somebody in the congregation puts their child in a, in a Christian school, they need a pastoral reference, and they typically have you write out this thing. You know, what ministries are they involved in? Well, they're operating in the, you know, big church context with the whole host of different ministries, you know, the, the parking lot ministry and the, you know, whatever the ministry might be. And I'll say they come to church. 
that that's almost like you know well that's it i've had people call our church what what, what, what do you have what what does what your church do well we have bible study on wednesday night we have two services on sunday they don't usually but you can kind of hear that's it what more do you want the fullness of God most high comes down into the midst of the congregation. It is a most sublime and most blessed and wonderful privilege for the people of God. See, the ordinary means of grace are to be treasured, not just the extraordinary. We always are inclined to the extraordinary. Give me the signs. Give me the wonders. Give me the things that dazzle. Well, most of the Bible is about the normal and the ordinary. Remember, in Joshua chapter 5, when they finally get into the promised land, the manna ceases, and then they eat from the land. God's grace is as much obvious in the ordinary provision from the field as it is in the manna. But we typically gravitate to the manna. We gravitate to the extraordinary. We gravitate to the signs and the wonders rather than growing in strength, growing in our knowledge, and knowing something of being filled with the fullness of God Most High. The book of Ephesians, as I said, is a very churchly epistle, and it would be good for us to get our minds and hearts wrapped around it. So those are the petitions. Let's move on, secondly, to the praise given to the glorious God. If you want more detail, go back to our sermon audio. I preached one sermon on that, actually two sermons on just the petitions, and then we dealt with the the, the praise. So so I'm giving you the abbreviated version tonight. This is the, the, the thumbnail sketch. If you want more development in terms of these particular petitions, it's on our sermon audio. And this isn't, you know, listen to my, I'm just saying, if you want to, I'm not commending it. I'm not saying you should or have to, I'm just saying it's there. Okay, but look at the praise given to the glorious God. So there's prayer, and then there's praise. There's petition, and then there's praise. And look at what he does. Verse 20, the God who is praised. Verse 21, the church who praises. So you've got the God who is praised, verse 20, and the church who praises in verse 21. Notice, verse 20, he speaks concerning the power of God. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Again, the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, and if I had to look at my own heart, do I think about God's power the way that Paul does? Verse 19 in chapter 1, he wants you to know God's power, not your power, not your ability, not your resources, not your, you, you know, your competent level, competency level. He wants you to know the power of God. He wants you to contemplate the rich resources that are available to the people of God. He wants you to consider yourself or consider the fact that there is limitless power to be had in our infinite God. So notice, God is the possessor of power now to him. There's a general application. Again, the Old Testament is filled with this, Psalm 63, 2. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your what? Your power and your glory. Why do you think David would go into the sanctuary to see God's power and glory? Uh, Probably because David was being hunted by Saul. David was opposed by Philistines. David wasn't living the life of, you know, ease and, and, and joy and comfort. So what did David need when he went into the sanctuary of God? Did he need coffee? Did he need sort of empower hour? Did he need therapy? Did he need? No, he needed to see God's power and glory. It is that 
which stealed his stole so that he could go out and fight the enemies of Yahweh. So he goes into the sanctuary, and there he sees God's power and glory. Psalm 68, 35, as I understand it, Psalm 68 was a favorite sung by the Huguenots as they went into battle. Oh, God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. This is one of the arguments for singing the Psalms of David, the Psalms of Zion. Modern hymnody does not capture the church militant the way that the Psalter does. We don't write hymns in the way that David wrote psalms. And so the church, I'm not arguing for exclusive psalmody, but I'm certainly arguing for more psalmody. The people of God should sing the songs of Zion because we are in a battlefield as well, and it's that view of God that steals the soul. As well, Psalm 145.11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of what? Your power. This is a very uh, very necessary theme in God's word. Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So when he says in verse 20, now to him, he's speaking of God as the possessor of power in that general sense that we see in these Psalms, but the specific application, he's just offered up petitions for strength for knowledge, for fullness. So it is fitting and appropriate that he underscores the God to whom he prays has the power to deliver. We don't come to a God who is impotent. We don't come to a God who is limited. We don't come to a God who'd really like to bless us, but he just doesn't have the wherewithal. No, we come to the one who has infinite resources at his disposal. And so when Paul petitions, he then goes on to praise the God who is able to supply our needs in Christ Jesus the Lord. And then notice, with reference to that power, he's not just, as I said, somewhat able. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You've all seen that, haven't you? You've prayed, and God answered in a way that you never would have imagined. Story of C.H. Spurgeon. I don't know if you've read the autobiography, but his parents prayed that he would become a believer, and he did. We know that he did. He was converted under that stupid preacher. That's his words, not mine. He went to the cottage chapel, and there was a snowstorm, and the minister wasn't able to get there. So this man that Spurgeon describes as a stupid man got up, and all he could do was quote Isaiah the prophet. Look to me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. And this man just kept repeating it, repeating it. And then he looked right at Spurgeon. You're not Spurgeon, but I'll look right at you. And Spurgeon is in the hot seat. And God saved him. God blessed him. So then Spurgeon becomes a Baptist, as we all know. And so he tells his parents, well, his parents were paedo-baptist. And they said something to the effect that, boy, son, we want you to be a Christian. And we're very happy, but we didn't want you to become a Baptist. And he says, well, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. I've always thought that's a humorous way to illustrate this, but we've all tested and proved our God to be faithful. We prayed for something, and we never expected for the result to be like it was. 
What does that indicate? Well, it indicates God's infinite resources and power, but it also indicates something about our little faith. What do you mean we didn't expect great things from God? Wasn't that William Carey's battle cry? Expect great things for God, do great things for God. If we have this view of God that he's limited, that he's that he's not omnipotent, that he's not all powerful, then our prayer life is gonna reflect it. But we in the reform community, the people that, that have inherited this rich tradition, the blessed reality, that we have a, a, a robust Christian confession of faith, we know this God to be powerful. We know this God to be sovereign. We know this God to be glorious. And we know this God to be giving and gracious and merciful. We know that the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7, is a reality. We know the riches of his grace, Ephesians 2.7, is a reality. We know that. We've seen it. And yet at times we're so, I can't believe that God would do such a thing. But why? God is that kind of a God. He's that gracious. He's that good. He's that glorious. So this promise of his omnipotence also functions as an enticement for us to pray, right? When you read that, hopefully you're a bit rebuked. Man, I, I haven't gone to God with the kind of petitions I should have gone. There's a hymn in the hymn book that says, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with the brain. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with the brain. That is Paul's emphasis in this particular section. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, and then he underscores this, according to the power that works in us, that power that raised Christ from the dead, that power that saves individual sinners, that power that brings solidarity between Jews and Greeks, that power works in us. That power is accessible to the people of God. And when I say accessible, I'm not talking like Benny I'm not talking about Kenneth Copeland, name it, claim it, and get whatever it is you want. Our God is not bail. It's not a formulaic approach. You don't put in your coin and out get your blessing. No, that's not what I'm suggesting. But I am suggesting we need to orient our mind to the reality that God is infinite in his power. God is infinite in his glory. God is infinite in his grace and mercy to his people. So that ought to be an encouragement for us to come to the throne of grace and to petition him for that strength, for that knowledge, and for that fullness of God. And then notice the church who praises in verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the privilege of the church. The glory of God is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd all agree with that, right? The glory of the Father shines through the only begotten Son. As well, the glory of God is revealed in the church by our Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at chapter 3. Notice in verse 8, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What does he mean by that? Well, brethren, here's what I think he means. I think he means that there's angels who are looking down on us and praising God that we've been saved by grace. In other words, the church is a trophy case. It's a display case. It's not to display our gifts, our abilities, our power. 
It is to display and demonstrate the power of God that he brings this kind of a group together. Have you ever thought about that? I think about it in our church. Most of the church that is in Chilliwack are are people that were brought up in the church. Many of them came from a a, a Dutch Reformed background. Others came from a broader evangelical background. I didn't come from that background. I feel like a fish out of water at some times in our local church. It, It just feels a bit odd, but it's not because that is what God is in the business of doing. Again, consider chapter two. He made one new man out of the two. Did the Gentiles love the Jews in the first century? Or better yet, did the Jews love the Gentiles? The Jews looked down at the Gentiles. As far as the Jews were concerned, they were dogs. They were not something to to have truck with. They were not a people that, that you delighted in. So what happens at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? We see what was prophesied all the way back in Noah's oracle in chapter 9 of Genesis, which is, you know, furthered along in the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is celebrated in the Psalter and the prophets, the reality of that verse 6 mystery, the Gentiles included in the covenant of grace, the Gentiles prospering and benefiting as a result of Israel's Messiah. So in that first century context, you're not dealing with a bunch of people that got along together, but now in Christ Jesus, they're one new man. They have that solidarity. It's not two different peoples of God until some further state. Right now, here and now, we have that solidarity. So the angels look down and they say, wow, what a glorious and a blessed God. As well, look at chapter 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come, we'll look at verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There, I think, he doesn't mean the new Jerusalem. I don't think he's speaking about when we get to heaven. I think he's talking about the ages that are in succession to the apostolic period. In other words, as long as the church is in play, the church will demonstrate the graciousness and the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and power of God. And Paul's emphasis here in verse 21 is the same. So verse 20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Now, I asked you earlier, has anybody ever asked you, why do you go to church? Not why do you go to this church? Well, I like the confession of faith. I like Pastor Mike. I like good preaching. I like, you know, good churchmanship. I like, you know, Trinity Hymnal. I like Trinity Psalter. I like the the people. I'm I'm not talking about that. What is your purpose for going to church? Again, commanded activity. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, as is the custom of some. Uh, Lord's Day, observance, there's a command in Scripture, set apart a day wherein you commune with God. Those are legitimate answers, as well to demonstrate, to magnify, to, to display the grace and glory of God. So when I write, they come to church, I should remember in the next time, they come to church and therein, they function to demonstrate the glory of God. They function in such a capacity that they mediate to the world around that God is glorious in the salvation of their soul. Isn't that what Paul's saying? So again, this lifts ordinary church attendance out of the mundane to the sublime. 
I get to go to church today, and I get to function as a trophy of God's grace so that when the angels look down, they can praise the Father that they say that he saved a wretch like him. But as well to a watching world, we are a demonstration of God's grace and power and glory. So if somebody were to say, why do you go to church? It is to show and demonstrate God's grace. Try that answer next time. They'll probably look at you baffled. Well, what? what? I, I happen to like the coffee my church serves, and, and you're going to demonstrate the glory and power of God? Are you a preacher? No. Are you a music minister? No. Are you, you know, special music? Do you do choir? Do you do so? No, I just sit in the pew. I sing with the, I sing with the rest of the, the rest of the plebes, and and I, I glorify and demonstrate God's power and majesty. See, brethren, again, we only ever think in terms of the extraordinary. Oh, it's the manna, but it's also what we plant. It's also what we hoe. It's also what we dig up. It's also what we cook. God is the God who supplies in both. So not only the extraordinary, but in the ordinary means of grace, God shines forth. And notice, there is not only the emphasis on the fact that the church will do this, in other words, her mission, but the perpetuity of the church's existence. Look at to him, verse 21, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. Look at that next phrase, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We were talking at lunch today, and it came up. I, you've probably seen it in the recent, you know, news, either, you know, mainstream media or some of these news magazines where, where they're talking about the decline in numbers at the church. Oh, yeah, church attendance after COVID, it's really dropped off. It, you know, they, they, they aren't reporting it in sort of a way that they care. They're kind of trying to spike the football and say, hey, you don't need the church anyway. I mean, you've got the state to worship. You've got Baal. You, you've got Moloch. You, you've got a whole host of gods. You, you've got any other thing you can worship. So, so they've got a vested interest in trying to convince the, the wayward Christian today that, you know, the church is on its way out. Not according to Paul. To all generations, the perpetuity of the church's mission to demonstrate God's glory in the public assembling together, but the perpetuity of the church's existence in order to continue to do that. They may think that the church is going to end. They may think that the church in North America is going to decline. They don't think in terms of Matthew 16. They don't think in terms of King Jesus Christ saying, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. They don't think in terms of Ephesians 3.21, that whenever the people of God exist together and they function in corporate worship, they there magnify and demonstrate the glory of God most high in his saving grace. God is about his glory, isn't he? I will share my glory with no other, he says in the prophet Isaiah. The Westminster Catechism, first question says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If we ask the question, what's God's chief end? God's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy himself forever. And so God will get glory. God will be honored. God will be praised. And there will be a church that is there to do it. There was a remnant in Israel. There were 7,000 that didn't bow the knee to Baal. There is a remnant today. And may it possibly be the case that it's the dead wood that's leaving. 
It's the dead wood that is going. It's those who were never real to begin with because they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have continued with us. First John 2.19. So brethren, don't despair. Don't get discouraged. Don't fear for Jesus. Christ is building his church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. John Gill says that all the infernal principalities and powers with all their united cunning and strength will never be able to extirpate his gospel, to destroy his interests, to demolish his church in general, or ruin any one particular soul that is built upon him. I take that Paul had that in his mind when he says to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the perpetuity of the mission, the perpetuity of our existence ensures that God is glorified in his worshiping people. When the fullness of God fills them, we manifest and demonstrate to the principalities and to a watching world and to one another. It's probably not ever escaped your notice at some point in your Christian experience. This guy is saved. We have a guy in our church that when somebody else saw him, he's saved. He's here. Hard to believe because I knew him as a younger man. We often think that, right? When we we get to heaven, we're going to probably see people. We're going to be like, he's here. How many people are going to see us and say, he's here? I, I knew that guy on earth. And truly, it's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So brethren, do not be afraid, do not be downcast, do not be discouraged, but rather be strengthened with might in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell richly in your hearts through faith, be knowledgeable, not in your love for Christ, certainly you ought to grow in your love for Christ, but in Christ's love for you, and may God be pleased to fill you, fill this church with all of his fullness, the way that Shekinah glory came down on the tabernacle, came down on the the Solomonic temple, and came down in that visionary temple. And as we see in Revelation 21 and 22, there's no temple there. Why? Because God and the Lamb are the temple. The whole concept of temple is replete in Scripture, and the concept simply means God dwelling with his people. And that's what Paul prays for the people of God, that they would know those things, experience those things, and grow in their understanding of them. We pray for you in Chilliwack. We love you. We love Mike. We're very thankful for what's happening here. In fact, I can say, I mean, I can't say it infallibly because I'm not infallible, but for the most part, typically we pray in our Wednesday night study. We pray at our Sunday morning prayer meeting. We pray typically in the pulpit morning and evening for the brethren in Surrey. We pray for the brethren in Armstrong. We pray for the brethren in Dryden. We pray for the brethren in Honduras, those churches that we have close fellowship with. And of course, then we extend out. But my point is, we love you in Chilliwack. We're thankful to see what's happening here. I'm very encouraged every time I come. I'm not one of those guys that comes up and, hey, it's great. It it is great, though. It's great to be here. My soul is filled. I'm happy that God is blessing our dear brother, Mike. I am, uh, he's very close with me. We, We have a good relationship. He encourages me. I I probably don't encourage him as I ought, but we have a great relationship and we're very thrilled at what God is doing here. So abound more and more, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, grow more and more, learn more, understand more. Do not despise the day of ordinary or small things, but utilize what God has given for the growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that this church may be used by God to 
demonstrate and to radiate his glory in the salvation of sinners. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you very much for your word. We thank you for these petitions that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And God, help us to remember such things when we go into the closet or when we gather together for corporate prayer. We know that the people of God stand in need of strength. We need to grow in our knowledge of the love of Jesus. And certainly, we need to be filled with all the fullness of God. And we rejoice in the Lord's day. We rejoice in this particular day. And I pray that you would bless the church here, bless our our brother Mike, bless the deacons, all the members and attenders here. And may this church serve to demonstrate the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.